you have to train your mind into certain habits and you know you can get to a stage where you sort of analyze things and you eliminate the garbage and the rubbish so then if you've put in a little bit of work beforehand you can go in i actually enjoy auditioning now there was a time i would have been when i started i would have been petrified welcome to social fabric in this program we'll bring your conversations with people discussing their passion and the interaction with their community we explore how different jobs, careers or achievements can inspire us to make small changes to improve our lives within our own community. You can find more episodes on socialfabric.ie or wherever you get your podcast. The program is also broadcast weekly on Dublin's Near FM 90.3. I'm your host Andrea Splendori and this week my guest is Jerry Cannon. Jerry's motto is you are never too old and he has lived by all of his life. Now, in his 50s, Jerry has decided to fulfill his lifelong ambition of becoming a full-time actor. This is my conversation with him. Can I call you up a Wallace on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Sit and talk a while Been so long now since I've seen you It's nearly ten years gone Heard in April that you passed through Why didn't you call? Don't I deserve a call? This ain't no love song, baby Or sad farewell a bit of a trip down to find a good ones and favorite ones and different reasons for it. Yeah, um, and sometimes, yeah, they're not necessarily, yeah, you pick so many different ones, but it's just kind of what came into my head yesterday. That's perfect. All right, so Jerry Cannon, thanks a million. We're on, we're on now, so Jerry Cannon, thanks a million for giving me your time. So, yeah, we've known each other from old days of football. Old fellas football, I suppose, but uh, that was a few years ago. When yeah, we I, I like to think it was international football because <laughs> you were from Israel. Yeah. <laughs> that was a few years ago, and we were already old, so whatever. But uh, so yeah, then you came back on my radar, seeing all the, the the work you're doing at the moment. So I just thought we'd have a chat about all that. And uh, yeah. but I think we'll start from the beginning, as in, give me a bit of background for where it all started for you. Like where did you grow up and all that? Where did I grow up? Um, well, I grew up in Blackrock. Beside the sea. So I'd never left living beside the sea. Um, while I live in Greystones now. And for a few years, it was in Kilkool. Um, yeah, so um, I suppose in terms of what I'm doing now, just jumping forward and backwards, yeah, yeah. like I'm now pursuing an acting career. Okay. So when I was at school, I suppose it was something that I wanted to do. But it wouldn't have been something that was encouraged. So... In my case, I was encouraged to get a permanent pensionable job. So back in 1976 now, when I left school, the options generally then were, I suppose, out of all the, the year that I was in school, with maybe a third went down the road to UCD or to Trinity, um, about another third would have got like civil service jobs or public sector jobs. And then the other third would have worked for... The private sector could have been insurance, bank, or family business. A few people probably did a trade. But um, 
that was it. So we all did exams for like the ESB and the P&T, as it was called, the Department of Post and Telegraphs, which then became Telecom Air and then Aircom. So I ended up in a trainee technician in the Department of Post and Telegraphs, as it was called, and I was sent down to Cork. So there were so many people from Dublin got selected that year that there was an overflow. So we went down to, I don't know if it's still called, it's the Cork Institute of Technology. Um, anyway, down there in Bishopstown, and that's where we went. So, um, but the acting thing is funny enough, like, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I remember there used to be these career guidance leaflets. These were sort of blue covered leaflets, about the same size as a copy book. And I remember there was one about acting. I picked it up in the school library and it said on the back, you know, you could apply to the Abbey Theatre School of Acting. So I sent off my letter to them and never heard anything back. The what reason, what the, age were you? I was 17, probably okay. 16 then, going okay. on 17. But um, the reason, of course, I never heard anything back, that it had closed down in the early 70s anyway, so <laughs> the leaflet was out of date and there was nowhere else. Um, but I do remember, like, one of the things that, you know, I really stuck in my head was we were doing um, the play, one of the plays we were doing for English was The Playboy of the Western World. And in the school hall, um, one particular day, the RT players who used to tour around the place came out and they performed it. And one or two people who would have been recognisable from the big soap at the time, the rural one, um, the Reardons, prior to Glen Row, were in the cast. But funny enough, um, a few years ago, I came across this felt hat and it was actually left behind by one of the actors and I kept it all these years. So I've used it dressing up as in kind of for barn dance themed sort of fancy dress thing. <laughs> I still have it. But um, anyway, so I moved on and then um, still sticking with the sort of inkling about acting. Um, around 1979, I think it was, there was, I discovered there was one, I suppose, theatre school in Dublin. It was called the Brendan Smith Theatre Academy, which was in Dame Street. Uh, sorry, George Street. And Brendan Smith himself had been a founder of the Dublin Theatre Festival. And at that stage, he also managed the Olympia Theatre. And he was kind of struggling to keep that afloat. This was before they started to have like music gigs there. So I went there. And then from there, um, a few of us went to the College of Music in Chatham Row because one of our teachers, Miriam O'Mara, got the job there. Uh, and her job was to to mind movement stage production with the opera students. So we ended up doing our thing there and the examiners then would come over from London, from the London Guildhall, and we would do our little pieces, our duologues and monologues and be assessed by lovely old people who came over from London. Um, your enunciation now is not quite what it could be. It was very good. <laughs> Yes, and you have a passion for it, <laughs> and so on. Um, and then a few of us set up this group called the Torn Curtain Theatre Company, and most of them were full-time at it, trying to do it. And we were probably one of the first groups to put on plays, I'd say, upstairs in the International Bar in Wicklow Street. Now, I was still juggling, been working full-time. And it came to a stage then, I think it was 1987, there was a place up on Ormond Quay called the Actor Centre, which last a few years and one of the actors Vinnie McCabe he set it up and 
I walked in there one day, I'd taken a half day off work or something, and there was an audition for Roddy Doyle's play, Brown Bread. And it was kind of about a day before the audition, but I either rang the, the number, the landline, or actually had to write a letter and post it off into a post box, no emails, and um, I went and auditioned. And I discovered most of the parts were gone. So the only parts that were left were, say, I think a guy who was probably about 40. Now, bear in mind, I'm probably about 28 at this stage or whatever age I was. And um, met a guy called Paul Mercer, who was the director, very nice. And Roddy himself happened to be there. And I did the audition and they liked it, but I just wasn't the right age. So at that stage, I decided I wasn't giving up the day job. Okay. So I was shelled from then. Okay. So before we carry on, Give me one of your songs, first of all. Um, Freddie White's version of Desperado's Waiting for a Train. Wow. Why that version? Um, well, back around that time and era, um, live music in pubs was still um, quite a thing. You know, the pubs in town, whether they were toners or the bag it in, or more particularly out this neck of the woods, you had the Mississippi Rooms in Bray or up in Mount Marion, where I used to go quite a lot. You had the Sportsman, which had been previously, I think, a ballroom beside the cinema. And um, so about five nights a week, a lot of these places would have music playing. But then, for various reasons, I suppose, um, maybe it was the follow-on from Saturday Night Fever, but disco music took over, basically. <laughs> and also, there would have been, again, probably one of the many mini-recessions in Ireland, so people stopped going out. But, you know, back then, it was possible for people in a band, probably to make a living, like, to survive um, by playing all these venues. Mm-hmm. Um, and Freddie White would have been one of the first people that I had seen. He brought out an album, which I can't remember what it was. It was his first album, which was around then, and that was on it. And again, I suppose what I like about that song, too, it's the kind of, it's like telling a story. Um, and I suppose in many ways I'm probably drawn to singer-songwriters because it's like the actor thing of mm-hmm. telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I suppose in some ways, like, it's a story about these two guys, you know, this fella and his father, and, you know, they they were drifters. The father drilled oil wells, you know. And at a certain stage then, just before the, the dad passed away, you know, the son realizes that he's got so old. And the father's name is Jack. Now, my own father's name is Jack. Mm-hmm. So if I had a romanticized version of what it would have been like with myself and the father, that relationship, it would have been that. But it was actually the opposite. In my case, my father got married late in life, so, you know, we were diametrically opposed when it came to a lot of things. <laughs> like, his standard reply was, we'd be having an argument about something. He says, it's not right. And I say, why is it not right? Because it's just not. You know, and that was kind of the <laughs> end. <laughs> that was the end of that. But, uh, so, yeah, that was also great when I was young then as well. Uh, yeah, it was a great time in here, so, and I really liked that song. When I play the Red River Valley He'd sit in the kitchen and cry And run his fingers through 70 years of living And wonder, Lord, is every well I drill gone dry Now his friends me and this I just uh, you jumped around a little bit there. I want to go back a second uh, from Black Rock to 
to your first edition there, 28, or well, it wasn't necessarily your first edition, but what I'm curious about is as a teenager and slightly older, where you had this idea of acting, you had this love for acting, but as you were saying, you know, you pushed towards getting a proper job, getting mm-hmm. a pensionable job. So all those years between you going to Bishoptown and, and so that was straight after Living Search, basically, mm-hmm. whatever school that That's was it, yeah. Was there anywhere, anybody there that, that would actually listen to you and go, okay, well, look, if you really want to be an actor or you just left that at your own device and, and just work, frustrating work for the post office or whatever it was called, mm-hmm. the postal. Also, well, actually, the funny thing was, um, in one sense, like, you know, people would say, oh, you know, school days, best days of your life. I mean, the best fun and the best crack I had was when I started working because I met all these fellas that I worked with who, you know, a lot of them were characters, to put it mildly. We had a great job. We were out and about. We were socialising with people. You know, we were actually going drinking in the afternoon, things that, you you know, <clears throat> how do you lead them nowadays in the workplace? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, it was, it was, I used to love, Monday morning, I used to love going into work. And the funny thing about the work thing was, um, there was a guy who worked with Tom Fenley. And we used to work around the centre of town. We worked um Crown Alley. There was a telephone exchange there. So we were what were called the line staff. So we fixed the telephones for that telephone exchange area. And um, anyway, Tom happened to live beside an actor called Jim Barkley, who has been in Fair City for years, but as a young man, he would have been in a very, probably um, Ireland's first soap, or I suppose it was a soap, Talca Row. I don't really remember it. I was a child, uh, and we didn't have a TV, but that's another story. <laughs> My mother didn't want any filth from England and beamed into our house. Toilet <laughs> toilet jokes, as you call them. But anyway, eventually that changed. But, but funny enough, um, Tom knew me from working with him, and... You know, I was keeping the people amused because I was always very good at impersonating people and doing accents, and that was kind of the background to it. And Tom was speaking to his neighbour, Jim, and he said, well, he should go to the Brendan Smith Theatre Academy. So that's actually how I heard about that. Um, but having said all that, I, I knew from my friends that were trying to do it. And back to actually just jumping slightly forward a few years, but still during that time in the College of Music, there were several of my friends who pursued it full time. Um, and some other people in the class, there was Caroline Rothwell who left and went off. She joined the first season of Fair City. She was there for many years. Um, Sean Rocks was another great actor. Sean eventually gave up the acting himself. He was a primary school teacher, but he's now on, you'll hear him on the radio on RT1 on Arena, does the arts program. Mm-hmm. And there was one or two others. Um, but over the years, like, even the ones that were successful enough, there was the other few that they still had to go back and go back to whether it was a job as a barman or there was another guy, Joe Gallagher, who used to go back and work for a construction company or a company that supplied material to construction companies. So I was always aware that, you know, certainly if you were going to be in Dublin, it, you know, um, you couldn't have a mortgage, basically, and which I had at that stage, and be a full-time actor. Or if you did, you'd need somebody a partner who would have, you know, a very good income. So it was the kind of practicalities of it. And at that stage, were you married? Uh, I was, yeah. I got married in 1984. So, um, yeah, and because I had the job, we were able to, um, you know, save up money, buy a house. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, so 25 I owned. We owned. We had a mortgage on a house. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that in itself was an achievement. But funny enough, like, there's always... It's not so much that there's a silver lining, but, I mean, one of the things, as a result, we say in 1987, when I decided, no, I can't give up the day job, um, I think it was that same year, um, I took up something that I'd never done before either that I'd always wanted to do, and that was sailing. Because um, the guy that I worked with, um, you know, thought the same thing himself. And uh, we went and we did a course in Dunleary over a month or a month and a half, a couple of nights a week, which led to a whole other area of my life. Like I'm still a qualified sailing instructor, so having never sailed. So I've got, you know, 30 years of enjoyment out of that as well. And a bit of an income as well, because I work in it. So, um, so in a roundabout way, you know, I came back to what I'm doing now, but I kind of have the two things. And I suppose what I've learned along the way, either of work, you know, when I worked full time or when I worked for myself for about 10 years as well. Um, there's an awful lot of life experience that I can bring, which I wouldn't have had had I gone down the road of being an actor full time years ago coupled with the fact that i don't think i probably could have taken the the rejection that goes with it because that's part and parcel of the job yeah um, and a lot of younger actors in particular really struggle with that because you know it's a very personal thing they mm. they feel that they are been made feel they're not good enough yeah. whereas that's not the case it's just there's only one role and it doesn't matter how many people like if 10 people are auditioned for one role Nine of them are going to be disappointed. That's the reality. Yeah. You know. Give me your next song first. Um, next song. Okay, well, we go off in a different direction. But I remember, um, like, as in broadening my horizons as well, I remember at one stage there was a magazine that came out every fortnight called The Great Composers, and with it came an LP. So this was classical music. And uh, one of the ones that I, my favourite, Ones will be Vivaldi's Four Seasons. But in this case, it's Nigel Kennedy's version. And Nigel Kennedy is a, a virtuoso, I suppose they call him. But Nigel Kennedy, I suppose, the, the appeal to Nigel would have been from probably around the punk time and era. So he had the gelled up hair. He would have the black Doc Martin boots. And if he was introducing a, you know, a piece, he'd probably say, right, well, this is a, another one by a bloke who's dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, there's there's lots of parts to the four seasons which are really nice. But I think there's a particular movement in the summer one, and it's almost like there's a swarm of bees, you know, it's going zzz, zzz, um, and that really evokes that kind of sense of it's the energy. In fact, there's a YouTube video I saw only quite recently, and there's Nigel and <clears throat> um, I suppose a whole string section, and they're performing the whole thing, and it's obviously summertime outside at night uh, there's a little castle in the background and all the musicians except him are sitting down and even the guys and the girls at the front like they're attacking they're lunging into the, the violins and you know they're like rock guitarists like peaking every last note Thank you. 
you're 28, you have a mortgage, you go, right, I can't afford to be a full-time uh, actor. Better carry on paying the mortgage, better carry on doing my job. Take up sailing, but go back to sailing in a minute. So did you stick to that job, fixing lines, phone lines for a while, for a long time, or the frustration? I know you were saying you were enjoying the, the camaraderie and all that, but how long did you stick to that? Um, I was there until 2001. Okay. So I slightly changed direction along the way in the sense that I was still a technician, but um, no, I didn't want. I suppose I didn't want to be doing the same thing all the time for the mm. rest of my life. I didn't want to just do the one job. Um, on the one hand, I used to well, I I got to a stage where I ended up working for myself or working on my own. I should say I'd always have a script for a play or something with me because I'd be working on something with other people. Um, but then I decided, okay, well, there was two things. One, aside from doing the, the technical qualifications like the city and guilds ones, I went off and I decided, okay, didn't go to university, but I'll go and I'll do a degree. And I went and I did a degree in public management with the Institute of Public Administration who were there in Lansdowne Road. So this is, um, you did, it was optional whether you went to lectures or not. But you had to go to so many weekends and tutorials. Um, so that took four years. So the idea with that was that, you know, I, I wanted to stay in the technical end of things, but become a manager. So I went off down that route, um, eventually got my degree. Um, and then I remember going for a job as an engineering manager, as it called. Got the interview, but didn't. So I didn't get selected in the end. It was called for interview. And I was kind of a bit browned off with that. But then again, you know, the way things often work out is sometimes if you don't get something, it's probably the best thing that happens. And um, around that time, I'd also start up a part-time business. So I saw this opportunity where a guy was selling second-hand drinks vending machines, literally that, you know, held cans of Coke and Club Orange and all that. So I put about six of these in factories around Bray. So I basically checked out people that I knew it was um, Lorraine O'Reilly worked for Lithographic, a big company in Bray. And I knew there was a guy through Sailing Club, Richie McConnell, who had a factory in Newtown and Kennedy. Um, so I approached them and gave them the spiel. And again, I was challenging myself there too because um, I was shy when I was growing up. But the shyness thing, which everybody, I suppose, or a lot of people have, I suppose was more of a, a lack of confidence. Like, I was never told I was wonderful, which was quite normal. But, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't have that absolute, you know, hey, it's me, I'm Jerry. <laughs> you know, um, and the idea of actually having to cold call and go up and ask people for something was something that terrified me. I mean, I remember going into supermarkets, you know, over the years, um, or again, it might be back in the telephone era, and he'd be in around the back where all the managers are, and there'd be this queue of fellas in suits, quaking in their boots, waiting to see the manager to try and sell them something. And then one or two other guys who were super confident. But particularly if you ever went in around Dunn stores, that was kind of a, that was a very terrifying organization, I would imagine, to work for, from what I observed. And I remember thinking, God, I would hate to do something like that. And funny enough, I ended up effectively doing the same thing because I had to go, approach somebody straight in the door without knowing them, chance in my arm, and try and sell them an idea or a concept that they may not want or hopefully that they would be open to. And um, 
So that led into the vending machine business that I had, which, you know, I found a niche in that and then went full time into that. And that lasted, that whole period was about a decade. But I, it was around about then, 2001, I left um, Aircom and then, um, yeah, the vending machine business was gone for about a decade. Okay. After that. Give me your next song before I ask you about the vending machine, because that's uh, where we were just talking before I switch on the microphone about it. Um, <clears throat> the next song, um, yeah, there's a song called Russians, right. um, which is written, performed by Sting. Mm-hmm. And um, interesting, because I remember, if, if you remember back, um, you know, throughout history, we'll say, like when I was growing up, there was the Berlin Wall. And um, it was like it was like the Great Wall of China. You assume it was going to be like that forever. And the Berlin Wall, for you know younger people who might know, was basically put in place after the Second World War, when basically the eastern side of Germany became part of a whole communist bloc, and the people on the eastern side effectively were kept prisoner in there. They weren't allowed to go near the place. They'd be shot trying to climb over it. And then I think it was around, uh, around 1990 or was it early, very early 90s, the actual wall crumbled. But also during that time as well, you had the whole thing of Russia had their nuclear weapons and America had theirs. And throughout, you know, the decades before that, um, there was always this threat that World War Three would probably kick off because one side or the other would press the button and send a nuclear missile across. And... Um, Khrushchev, who was in Paris, this would have been still in the 80s, in Russia had more or less said, one, you know, to the West, well, we bury you, you know. And on the other side, you had President Reagan says, we protect you. And the song called Russians was probably written at a time when Sting himself had young children and he's kind of wondering what the future holds for them because he's, you know, saying about, you know, you know, um, like, well, how... How, what can I do to protect my boy from Oppenheimer's deadly toy? And, you know, there's no monopoly and common sense on either side of the political fence, you know? And, um, you know, the line goes then, well, I hope the Russians love their children too, you know? Um, but funny enough, I, that, that was 1987, that album, because I remember I thought it was, it was literally the last year we were living in Kilkool, that Christmas, and... Then a few years later, you know, taking that album and says, God, this is all irrelevant now, you know? Mm. And I was only there, I think a few months ago, I said, well, Jesus, like, we're kind of back there again. You have Trump in America. <laughs> you have this fellow in Korea who says, I have a nuclear bomb and I'll do whatever I like with it. <laughs> and then you have Putin in Russia who's, you know, man's a toad play. So, you know, it's... And the thing about that song I really liked about it was that um, aside from... Sting singing it. The chords in the background are the coffee album, which is this like sense of forgotten. So there you go. You're a America. There's a growing feeling of hysteria. Condition to respond to all the threats and the rhetorical speeches of the Soviet. Mr. So you obviously like to challenge yourself because uh, we'll get to the action in a minute, but uh, 
I'm just curious about because when I met you, you were doing the the um, the vending machines business, and yeah. I remember talking to you about it at the time over football, you know, after football games, or whatever. And so the vending machines, like when when kids go to primary school, they're taught how to eat properly, blah blah blah, blah. and then you go to secondary school, there's vending machines, and at the time. I was wondering, you know, when my kids, they were starting secondary school around that time, I was like, really? You know, we, we taught them about broccoli and all the rest and next thing this. But you, you're, taking a diff- you're taking a different route. Once you, you put those six vending machines in the factories, business expanded and you went a different route. You know, like you went more like organic or fair trade or whatever. Tell me a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, well, it was kind of um, to look for a niche. I mean, okay, so, you know, the... It, it wasn't a, a new concept by any means. So you had the big soft drink company, one in particular, mm. who kind of had the, mar- the market cornered in the, the business sector. And as a result of for them to stay in business with their drinks machines, they got involved in the snack vending business as well, just by default. So there's a couple of big companies really control the whole uh, commercial sector. So... Um, yeah, the, the opportunities that were there were really just to approach very small businesses where it wasn't necessarily economically viable to put a machine in somewhere where there's only six people working. Um, so then um, the whole thing, I heard the whole thing about fair trade um, and, you know, where the, the producers of the cocoa beans or whatever the product is, you know, basically get a, a fair price for their product. And um, then as a result of that, the if it's a bar of chocolate, it would be endorsed with the fair trade label. And that also became a, a topic that of um, awareness among students at schools. So um, what I did was I decided I would concentrate, at this stage too, a lot of secondary schools, not in my time, but currently at that stage, we're talking like, you know, early 2000s, whatever, um, would have had vending machines with all the, the stuff from the, the major multinationals. And Nestle, for instance, would have had not a good track record in terms of their, you know, activities in uh, third world countries to was well, to discourage mothers to stop breastfeeding by powdered milk and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, so I decided I would go after that niche. Now, there was other people, as I said, in that business, but they were supplying the regular stuff. So I had approached from a couple of things. One was fair trade products. Um, other things were like organic rice cakes and um, there was also Irish handmade products um, which I promoted and so on and without going too detailed into it that was a great idea and it took off and a lot of people bought into it and they threw out the other machine they had or they took it in the machines that I put in also had built-in timers that were made in America they were really a quality machine so you could have the thing switched off during class times and all the rest of it, you could regulate the whole thing. Um, but then, ultimately, um, what kind of backfired there was the whole obesity problem uh, had arrived, which, you know, students, fast food, lifestyle, etc. You, you know, we know all the reasons, the lack of exercise. So the easy target was, um, oh, we'll just get rid of the vending machine, you know. And... Um, it was hard, like, for every new site you get, you'd be losing kind of two. So it was kind of a tricky thing. So once, so eventually, put a long story short, I got to a stage where I had a competitor in the same niche as well, the biggest player in the whole school thing. And um, he'd approached me several times about basically buying 
the, the sights off me effectively and I wasn't interested and then ultimately got to a point in 2015 I said I've had enough of this so that's exactly what I did I offloaded what I had and just moved away from it and it also in terms of working for yourself been there done that and the long hours involved and you know you get to a point where you know you expand but then you have to employ people other than part-time people then you know in between all of that after 2009 you had the whole banking crisis the whole financial thing so you know been a small business and all of that it was just very difficult time for people generally and the whole austerity thing so um it, it was a good idea probably if i had kicked that idea off maybe five years previously it could have expanded greatly it could have been a big a great success but then again like everything else in business it could have ultimately crashed as well for any other reason you know mm. i mean it's been interesting you see in ireland even people who are you know successful and billionaires and you know come tumbling down through um and like you see wow like they're so successful and then well they're not anymore like no. <laughs> <laughs> right give me a next song please next song yeah um james mm-hmm. uh, sit down yeah so like there's um i think it's just the energy of it and it's also you know it 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 asks people like you know those of you who are touched by sadness sit down next to me you know you're feeling a little ridiculous sit down next to me but there's a great um sign i think i've seen it as a poster but certainly i would have seen it on social media but there's this um quote that says Sing like nobody's listening, dance like nobody's watching, and live each day like it's your last. Well, I reckon if you get the first two out of three, you know, that's great. And that song, <laughs> Sit Down, just reminds me of that thing. Yeah, this is what you need to do in your kitchen. Yeah, when you need to cheer yourself up or give yourself a good encouragement. Sailing, right? You mentioned sailing, starting the sailing quite late in life for a sailor, because uh, you said to me the other day on the film, most sailing sailors start in primary school or secondary school. You know, eleven years old is normally when you start sailing. You decide to take it on at twenty-eight, but or thereabouts. And I know quite quite a lot of my friends are into sailing, and there's something about sailing that I found fascinating. I, I don't sail, but it creates a certain calmness in the person. Am I right in saying, like, being out at sea, uh, you learn to be quite, I suppose, calm and and composed dealing with things. Did you find that helps? Uh, well, I suppose there's two aspects to saying. Right. Um, there's probably the aspect that you said, if you want to go in your boat and out to sea, there's no engine and you switch off and the only sound is uh, you know the gentle breeze going through the sails etc um 
But then there's the other side of sailing, which is totally frantic and mad, which is the end that I ended up in because it's a competitive sport. So we race. Now, what I race in is a dinghy. So it's a small little boat that's whatever, 16 feet long. You wheel it into the sea, down the slipway on a trolley. And then when you're finished, you just bring it back to shore again, as opposed to a bigger boat that's sitting in a marina that you could actually go and sleep on or go off for a day trip to Dalky Island. So um, so in terms of the age thing, yeah, I people who kind of race boats, whether they are dinghies or bigger boats, like what generally people just describe as yachts, um, key boats, um, the people who generally are really good at that from a racing point of view are probably people who started to learn when they were kids. Um, you know, during the summer would have done training course or whatever. So I found that, you know, when I joined Race on Sailing Club and was getting to grips with the whole racing thing. Um, and racing dinghies, it's a bit like if you, like in a bigger boat, it's like a car with four wheels. It doesn't turn over. A dinghy is a bit like, like a motorbike. You're going to fall off and the thing, you know, capsizes or whatever. So the people who are really good at that were the ones who did start as kids. So there's this huge, steep learning curve required if you come to it as an adult. So whether you're, what age is I mean, joined Grace Stones? 29. So, you know, you have probably about 12 years of catching up to do <laughs> to try and even get to a competence level, not to mind whether you're going to be as skillful as, you know, a lot of the other people that are there. But, um, yeah, on the other hand, you don't have to do the racing thing, you know. And if you do go out for a sale... And say, for instance, you decide to head from Greystones to Hope and you're out there and you're sailing past Dalky Island. Um, you know, you, you have this lovely perspective looking in at the, the shore, the landscape, the hills, the mountains that you don't normally get when you're on land. You have the fresh air in your head. And, um, yeah, a lot of people just relax and chill and tear their heads just by being out there. But even when you're out raising, I've been on a few raises just as a the dead weight, the need of the dead weight on a bigger boat. But what I found that the the, the skills required to tag whatever all the, the the words and you know, to turn around when you when the wind changes and all that, it's quite frantic. But it still needs a, a calmness about the whole thing. That's what I find fascinating about the, the sailing. But tell me. Why did you decide then to go to become an instructor? Um, you were just really loving it, or you just thought oh, it was a mixture of things. Uh, well, it was again, it was the circumstances, probably by default. So, because I um came to it like as a young adult, um, or still a young adult, so that's under 30, but anyway, um, yeah, it, it was one of these things. Suddenly, I had a passion for it, and I thought, you know, like we live beside the sea here, in fact, you know. The whole country is surrounded by water, but sailing is still very much a minority thing, um, activity, like, and everybody should have an opportunity to try it. And I suppose traditionally, a lot of it has been associated with yacht clubs and yachting, which is fairly elitist, or else, you know, you, you just need to be well off to be able to afford to do that. But um, to try sailing, two bit of dinghy sailing, you know, doesn't necessarily require money other than the price of the sailing course. And um, I got involved in organising the training courses down in Greystones and expanded it and, um, you know, employed the instructors and built it up 
from what it was, you know, to a much bigger entity. And then during all of that time, um, this was, you know, whatever it was from, I think it was over 15 years, it was 2001 or two, I think, um, kicked off. And then I would end up spending quite a bit of my time in the summer down there, and especially, and also when I had the vending business, because it was sort of seasonal, I was down there quite a bit. And then we had the whole construction went on down in the Marina and Greystones. And um, what the contractor, of course, didn't realise, there was a commitment given by the county council that the clubs would have access to the water all the time. So effectively, we were sailing out through the middle of a building site. And that was fraught with anxiety for the project managers and people who were there. And there was one or two kind of near misses at one stage. You know, there was this big raft in the middle of the old harbour with the kids named the claw which is like a digger and this you know loony driver and it's swinging the arm around and nearly knocking kids out of boats and all sorts of mayhem and the, the request came from the project manager you know all these instructors are great but we want someone over 30 supervising this so this is around 2009 2010 so the plan was okay I get myself officially qualified as the senior instructor to run the show. So I went off, became a racing instructor and a senior instructor and so on. So um, so I built up all my qualifications, which subsequently came in useful later to get jobs elsewhere. Um, so um, that's how I ended up with the instructor qualification. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that I like the idea of sharing the knowledge and being able to bring people along. So I would say I have an aptitude for that as well. So, you know, the key was also to help younger people become better instructors. But because of the nature of the the activity, it's more or less a seasonal thing. So what happens is most sailing instructors you have in Ireland, probably in the UK and other places as well, is that there are kids who come to the whole training system and they do their various levels and then once they kind of got to the, the top end of that, the next step is become an instructor. So they do this for a few years between their late teens and early college years, and then they drop off. Um, so there's only sort of a very small marine industry in Ireland. Um, so there's very few people can make a living out of it full time. So you don't have instructors in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s like you may have in America, for instance, or wherever, mm. um, or parts of the world where the climate lends itself that you can be out on the water like maybe nine months of the year. Mm. So um yeah, that was um that was a that was a, an unusual kind of um I suppose thing that somebody who was probably heading for fifty decides to become a sailing instructor, but I did it anyway. <laughs> so what we listen to next? Listen to next um that would be oh yeah. Um one of the things that I really um, loved was rock and roll music from the 50s. And there was a band called um, Hurricane Johnny and the Jets who used to play around Dublin. They used to play in the Black Rock, yeah. in Pier Street and various rugby clubs and tennis clubs. John Terry. <clears throat> yeah. And um, anyway, so um, we used to go on a Friday night ourselves, a few of us, friends in Rosemary, and we'd go to the Magnus um, and having a live band playing these tunes who knew how to do them. So, Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues. That's probably one of the few songs that I could do carry well. <laughs> I'm a gonna raise a bus, I'm a gonna raise a horror. About a working 
time I call my baby Try to get a date My boss says No dice, son, you gotta work late Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do But there ain't no cure for the summertime Now we're finally coming to your acting. Yeah, because you've um, obviously it's been in your blood since you, you were a kid, and and now you decided in the last few years for different reasons, selling the vending machine business and what have you. You decided that's it. I'm going to give it a full time. But you didn't build more than just acting, right? You set up. Um, you set up a production company or a, you're involved in it. Like, tell me a bit. You're involved in, in festivals and all sorts of things, right? Yeah, well, I suppose, um, yeah, when I decided, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't like as soon as I got rid of the vending machine business that, right, I'm going to become a full-time actor. It was kind of, what am I going to do? Um, because funny, just leading into that, um, you know, going back to the sailing instruction thing, one of the one of the things I ended up getting some work on was Vikings when they were making it down in Ashford, but that was as part of the Marine crew. And uh, there was a core group of people there, but the Marine coordinator there, a guy called Alistair Rumble, is the, the man who ran the sailing school that I learned how to sail in, in Dunleary, which was called, back in the day, the Dunleary Sailing School, now called the Irish National Sailing School. But um, anyway, so... Around that time, I got a bit of part-time work down in Ashford in season five and six. And then I was kind of wondering what else I would do. I, I wanted to do something maybe technical because I had my technician background. Um, I was wondering about maybe getting involved in some area of film work, you know, like the special effects area or trying to find an opportunity where I might get some work. And I remember talking to a producer called Paul Myler, who lives locally here. He's produced a lot of Jim Sheridan's work. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, and then I was looking at screen acting because when I had this ambition to be an actor, like it was for theatre work. But um, the whole screen acting thing had taken off. And, you know, between, uh, you know, like all your streaming things, your Netflix, etc., etc. Uh, and then in Ireland also you have loads of um, third level colleges who do filmmaking courses um, so I decided to do some screen acting workshops and I said okay well looking at it from a practical point of view if I'm going to get paid for doing a bit of work it won't be you know in a small little theatre in Parnell Street with 40 people in the basement you know because I get a part in the TV drama or film but I've got to go down that route and then coincidentally this was around 2016 there was a group of people who met up and we formed um, a group called the North Wicklow Filmmakers, uh, which became No Wi-Fi. So I was there on Clubhouse two years ago, 2018, when last January, yeah, end of 2018. So basically what happened at that stage, it still exists, but about seven or eight of us, about seven of the eight original members, we moved on and are doing different things now. But... Um, then I also set up my own little company, which is called Son of a Gun Films. And uh, again, that's basically to get people who, like myself, want to make films. So whether they are a screenwriter, director, cinematographer, whatever. Um, and next Monday, which is October the 7th, there's um, a short film 
going to be screened in The Mermaid. It's a, basically a preview of what will ultimately be the finished product. It's called Paper Planes. So I was, I was a producer on that. I'm not actually acting in it. So it's written by uh, Megan Robinson and Oshin McFarlane Smith, who are also the directors and he's the cinematographer. So the idea uh, was that while I was fortunate enough to get an agent uh, back in 2017, the life of an actor basically means you sit around between jobs if you're waiting to get paid work. So my approach was to keep working all the time, to keep busy, to gain experience. Because bear in mind, I have 25 years of catching up to do here. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I, there has to be some way of fast tracking this. And also, I think, you know, because of the medium that I want to work in, which is screen, um, that's a whole different technical experience to and, stage acting. And what, uh, so what kind of jobs have you been getting to keep busy? And like, because I, I, I'm sure it's not easy. Uh, I talked recently to Mark Lambert, a you know, oh, seasoned yeah. uh, actor for the last know, 42 Mark. years. Yeah. And he, he does predominantly uh, stage, but um, but he always said, he, he said to me before, he says, hey, if you ever see me driving a nice big car, it means I got a job in, in, in the movies, you know? Yeah. But, but what kind of jobs have you been getting? Uh, well, paid work generally is commercial work like adverts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's the one on TV, I think it's back again now this year again. Well, they've paid me again for this year. And right. Lloyd's Pharmacy ads, there's online work. But I also do voiceover work. Um, like next week, I have a job to do a voiceover for a short film. Guy and Cork made this film called 72 Hours. Um, he happens to be based in Cork, but it's based, it's a nice story. It's based on, um, a man reminiscent at when he was 10 or 11 and he went off with a few other friends because a neighbour offered them a lift in the car up to see Kilkenny playing Waterford in um, the All-Ireland final. So um, that's a paid job. Um, and also because through the, through the voiceover work as well, what we also do is there's a group for us do a thing called Loop Group ADR, ADR additional dialogue recording, or some people call it automatic. So some of the big TV series like um, the Irish ones like Blood, Taken Down, The Dublin Murders, which is coming up the BBC mm -hmm. one, uh, I would have worked on that. So got about two or three days. So what we do in that case is you have all the, the, the scenes where you have the main characters, but in the background, say it's set in the guard station and you have the detectives and the guard, the interviewing people. So all those kind of mumbled conversations that go on in the background, we do the vocals for that basically, okay. or people cheering at a football match or people in a church or wherever okay. it is. Okay. Um, so it's kind of the extras for, for audio type of thing? Yeah. So like, yeah, when, when, when they film those particular productions, I mean, the, the sound is recorded from the main characters, but Anybody who's in the background is told to mine. And then that sound gets filled in later. Okay. And that's one of the jobs that I do. So, um, yeah, the, there's small parts every now and again that come up. There was a feature film um, which was made um, about six months ago, which is still in post-production. I have a scene in that as an Irish doctor. So, yeah, that would have been a paid job. But a lot of the time, what you need to do is just go out, create your own work. Okay. Um, and that's what I've been doing. Great. What's the next song? And I'll ask you a couple of more things about filming. Um, the next song, um, let me see here now. Oh, yeah. Tom Waits, Grapefruit Moon. Um, that particular album, um, 
is the kind of the Tom Waits voice that was there before he because I'm not a great fan of that but um, but that particular song Grapefruit Moon it actually reminds me too you know again when I was a little boy if you're at home and it's dark probably five o'clock in the evening but you're looking at the kitchen window and if it's a full moon even though it's dark you can still see the moon but you're looking up at the moon and there's this sense that it's only yourself and the moon there's nothing else there you know Create your own work, right? Um, which I, I think is fantastic. Do you do any writing? Do you write your own scripts? Do you write your own stories, or is it predominantly acting? How how the people you collaborate with? You know, you mentioned the seven or eight of you guys went off and decided to do something else. Mm-hmm. Give me a sense of that because I loved all of that and I loved the idea of uh, of like you mentioned something there earlier on about all these different venues you used to go to in the eighties. Mm-hmm. All those venues are disappear there's very yeah. little available and I'm supposing in a way you is it something you're trying to recreate as well as film work but is it something that having somewhere to go and perform and meet like-minded people watch like you know you mentioned the mermaid is a lovely mm. the same as the whale theater yeah, the lovely yeah. venues for small productions you know yeah well it's probably a combination of both um like just in terms of the venues and just creating, you know, work for other people and showing it. So, for instance, just in relation to when the Whale Theatre opened, which is a great venue, and Ross, you know, is, I suppose, a, phila- a philanthropist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's not just doing this for the money, but he's given a platform to people to um, see things that they wouldn't get to see locally. Mm-hmm. And also people who are, you know, relatively unknown to give them stage. Um, so what I did was I organized, I think it was three different screenings of short films, um, during 2018 down in the whale, which were well received. Um, but that was one, one platform, shall we say, for doing this. Um, like one of the reasons that, you know, you can make short films or comedy sketches is also because technology has allowed it. So on the one level you have, um, your digital cameras. So any SLR cameras, they used to be called you know, digital single lens reflex camera can record. So basically it's a memory card. So like, I'm sure if I was doing this back in the eighties, like if somebody wants to make a short film, they would have had to, you know, come up with a couple of thousand pounds because you actually had to buy actual film, get it developed. That's the side if you could even afford to hire film cameras from you know one of the few places that existed where you could rent this equipment from so um the opportunity for people to make content is there which wasn't there before um and also again like a bit like this podcast the opportunity 
to have a platform to show that on, um, there's that. Um, but also in tandem with all of that, then you have loads of film festivals take place in Ireland. Um, I suppose one of the things going back to when, you know, there was live music in pubs and other venues like that. Um, one of the other things, I suppose, in the art or creative world that kicked off then was the amount of festivals there are in Ireland to cover any type of activity, any type of creative activity at all. And, you know, again, it's tied in with tourism and it's keeping places vibrant and make things happen in places which will be pretty dead otherwise. But the film festival thing is quite a big one. And currently, um, before we go back to fully answer the other question, is that, I mean, there's four different film festivals in October and I'm in five short films that are in four of those festivals. So that's kind of happened just coincidentally at the same time. Could be my 15 minutes of fame now, so I have to enjoy it. Um, and going to these festivals is a great way to meet lots of people, fellow filmmakers. And you also, depending on the kind of, I suppose, the level of the festival, some of them are international ones. Some of them you have, you know, very well-known filmmakers and people who are already have a certain recognition in the business will just make a short film. Um, you know, speaking of Roddy Doyle and, um, you know, the, the film called Rosie, which was kind of inspired by the whole homeless situation and you've great actors and like Charlie Murphy and the people like Mo Dumford and so on. And you can get some of these films that will go off internationally and win lots of awards as well. And the films will have a budget behind them. But you can also make something for more or less very little if you get enough people on board who will give their time and their energy to it. So the starting off point is a good script. I don't like myself. At some stage, I might um, go down that route a little bit. Um, it might be a comedy thing, I suppose, because I often have lots of funny ideas in my head, but I never <laughs> I never write them down. I don't remember them. It's usually just spur of the moment kind of thing. Um, but um, again, the great thing about the whole film, uh, short films in particular, is that you get a collaborative you know um situation where somebody has good script somebody else has a bit of equipment you hire a bit of equipment you borrow a bit of this somebody has the skill to be a good editor again you can do this on a, a computer at home now if you want to get a high-end broadcast quality production you will have to send your film out to a production house to color grade it properly things like that which um, you know, are the difference between being sort of superb and very good. Um, but I think one of the things um, that I've really enjoyed about this business too is that I've actually met loads of people from all over the world who are living in Ireland who I would never have got to work for in a regular job. So, you know, again, there's, um, I made a short film last January, which is still in post-production and Sophia Orlones, who's from Venezuela, wrote it and directed. She's a really talented person. And um, on that cast and crew, I'd say one of the days when we were up in Rathmines where we shot some of the internal stuff, if there was 12 or 13 of us there, I'd say maybe four of us were Irish. So people from Italy, Russia, Hungary, um, you know, I've met people from Brazil, Mexico, 
other side of the world, Lebanon, all the various former Soviet bits are the same, like people call themselves Russian, but they're well, probably born in Latvia or Lithuania yeah. or somewhere. But, and, um, you know, that, that's been the wonderful, um, for me, experience that I would never have had. And, and it's great what you said earlier on. I mean, with, the, with your 40 plus years of experience having, having left school, you know, that you can bring that to your acting skills mm-hmm. because obviously um, you've learned through your business, through your sailing, through your life, life throws all lot of things at you and uh, and that brings it into you can bring that into your acting and what's so what's the next project have you anything in the pipeline something that you're really excited about apart from you know your paid job what's your what's um, your your, your um... there's a couple of things in the pipeline well all the time continuously like this morning there uh, you know there's an email in from my agent and there's um you know, this feature film is going to be a comedy that's going to be set in Ireland. So, you know, if your age profile fits it, so I put my name forward for that. There's like, I have to do a self-tape for another feature film that's been set in Cork. Now, there's no guarantee. That you, self, the whole thing about self-taping like, is the idea now that um, what you do is you get your camera phone or your digital camera you have a couple of pages of script, you get someone in the room who can't be seen to read the other character's part, and you do your acting bit. You send that tape off, as in that link, and the casting directors look at it, and from there they will select the few people they want to audition. Though in some cases, actually, they just select from self-tape. Like for next next Friday, uh, it's next Friday, the 11th, I'm doing an online advert. This is a charity one for a group called Belong To. Um, but everybody is given their time for free for this. Um, like the radio slot for this will be on a 2FM and RT. And the the actual three different scenes that will be filmed will be shown on their social media platforms, mm. the various RT ones. But um, so all the creative people have given their, their time for this. Um, in fact, what's really interesting about this, this group called belongto.org, are a support group for teenagers, young people who are, you know, LGBTQI plus, and I probably left out something there, but that's just because I'm old and don't understand it. Um, but again, like that's something going back to school and all the rest of it, like didn't exist. Well, it was obviously there in the background, but you know, when I was at school, nobody in my year was gay, you know, and the poor unfortunates who were had to keep their heads down and pretend, deny that those feelings existed. But um, yeah, so that's that's another great thing, like, you know, to be able to get involved with something. But going back, but that was cast purely from the self-tapes, by the way. I didn't actually have to go for audition. I just sent in this tape of myself with the other character and they got selected that way. Last thing I'm very curious about, you said you were shy as a teenager or young mm-hmm. younger man. What's it like to Say, hopefully you get a call from Cork to say, yeah, you've been selected for shortlisted for the live audition. Mm-hmm. What's it like to wait in the in the waiting room and you know you're sitting amongst other similar looking people that have gone for the same job? You're third in the line to go in and do your audition. What's mm-hmm. it? Do you still get butterflies and you feel pretty nervous going in or at this stage you developed like between knocking on doors for selling vending machines and everything else have you developed a confidence you walk in there 
It, it's both. What it is, is that naturally before anything like that, it's the same as going for a job interview or it's like for actually just for anybody um, who never did anything to do with acting. You know, if you are asked to say a few words, whether it's at a wedding or whether it's at a colleague leaving work or whether it's because somebody has, you know, nudged you with the elbow as the candles were blown out in the cake and suddenly you're told, oh, Say something, would you? You know, and they're put in the spot. Um, you know, and their mind goes blank, and you know, suddenly you look at them, and you, you can see, you know, their it, their shirt is open, their neck is going bright red because their body temperature has suddenly just notched up. Um, yeah, there is a bit of that that nervous thing, but then I've also worked on it as well. So, um, I suppose I spent an awful lot of my life. Um, doing training of one sort or another, you know, after, after I left school when I was at work or whether it's, uh, you know, sailing or um, any other technical aspects. And I'm a great believer in this, you know, I suppose, lifelong learning. But one of the things I do is, um, aside from go to workshops, like I do have an acting coach, a well-known actor called Nick Dunning. And a lot of this is to do with a thing called NLP, neuro-linguistic programming okay so basically you have to train your mind into certain habits and you know you can get to a stage where you sort of analyze things and you eliminate the garbage and the rubbish so that if you've put in a little bit of work beforehand you can go in i actually enjoy auditioning now there was a time i would have been when i started i would have been petrified because you overthink it you're trying to think Okay, I'm here in front of Andrea. I think Andrea would like it if I pretended I was a big tough American. And no, Andrea just wants to see what Jerry has to offer that nobody else came in before or afterwards. Just something different that will stimulate him to say, oh, that's very interesting. Could you do it this way? Well, what about, you know, whatever. You know, because you want to be amazed or entertained. You don't want to see the same thing. Um, so... Um, I think what's probably the, the, the biggest pressure more so to do with, I say, auditioning is what's happening all the time. You know the way in general in life things are supposed to happen like yesterday. So it's this short lead in time. It's like getting like been told today, oh, could you come in tomorrow at 10? Well, <laughs> you know, I have to go to the hospital to visit someone like, to do something else. Like, you know, any kind of... You know, it's, it's more the pressure of last been found, you know, been told something last week where you can't put the time and effort into maybe figuring it out. And while that might work spur of the moment, sometimes stuff is good. But um, no, I'd look forward to getting called for audition. In fact, I want to get called for more. That's the problem. <laughs> Ones with big paychecks. <laughs> well, hopefully somebody listening to this will uh, give you a shout. Listen, just before the last song, what's um, give us a couple of words of wisdom. What's What gets you up in the morning? A quote, anything. What gets me up in the morning? You're never too old. That's it. That sounds fantastic. I love that. And just talking to you, I've been thinking in my head, geez, I might just join uh, uh, Jerry's group. You never know. Yeah. And tell me something. What's your last song? And then I'll let you go back to whatever you were doing this morning. Um, the last song is The Island by Paul Brady. Oh, lovely. Um yeah, it's, it's a wonderful song um, and it, it encapsulates so many different things like, um, like you know, you hear people say, oh, yeah, the soundtrack to my childhood was this or, you know, 
if you're in America, yeah, the Vietnam War was the soundtrack, you know. Well, when I was growing up, from the age I was 10 until I was 40, like the troubles in the North were, were the soundtrack. That was on the news. And um, again, just right now, because of the inability of these clowns in England to understand the importance of Good Friday Agreement, etc., like we are in danger of, you know, an awful lot of crap that was in the past, you know, might be people using the opportunity to kick that off. But um, in in the song, The Island, I mean, it starts, you know, talking about the, about, you know, the troubles in Lebanon. And then he says, we're still at it in our own place. And, you know, about young men dying in ditches and, you know, uh, people trying to carve the future from a tombstone. And at the same time, the song is also a love song. And it's about, you know, been able to walk on the beach, tracing your footsteps in the sand. And I suppose one of the most physical, sensual experiences that you can have is to actually make love with someone on a beach at sunset, ideally if the air is warm. <laughs> but there's cool breeze coming in off the sea to cool you down afterwards. And, um, yeah, so <laughs> it has it all in there. And remember, Andrea, you're never too old. Perfect. Jerry Kenneth. Thanks, Amelia, for your time. Thank you. They say the skies of Lebanon are burning Those mighty cedars bleeding in the heat They're showing pictures on the television Women and children dying in the street Now we're still at it Reach the future through the past Still trying to carve tomorrow from a tombstone But hey, don't listen to me Cause this wasn't meant to be no sad song We've heard too much of that before Right now I only Wanna be here with you Till the morning dew comes falling I wanna take you to the island And trace your footprints in the sand And in the evening when the sun goes down We'll make love to the sound
If you got this far in the podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share and leave a review on iTunes. It's much appreciated.